Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to an hour of our time. Today we're going to be talking about depression and mental health. And just a word of note up front, it's going to be a somewhat personal episode, a little bit different than our typical episodes. But I think that it'll be something you can really get a lot out of. I'm Dave. I'm Mark. And today we're joined by two guests, my wife, Leanna. Hello. And our friend, Brian Bishop-Wilkie. Hi. Well, thanks for agreeing to help us with this episode. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I've studied psychology for a long time. This is not what I got my PhD in. So when you want to do a, a, like one on, you know, relationship science, let me know, because uh, that's like what I actually studied. But I'm happy to help here. We did an episode about dating apps. We should have had you on for that. Maybe we are. Oh, due, that would have been fun. Maybe we're due to do a part two of that at some point. What do you think, Mark? There have been a, a lot more dating apps come out since then. I don't know if they're that much different. But I see commercials for them all the time. <laughs> dating apps are are fascinating. So yeah, that that would be a good one. Uh, yeah. I mean, dating apps are like the big speed dating, and that's that's basically what my my advisor did his dissertation on. So gotcha. Yeah, I guess we should we should mention specifically our our special guest today, um, my wife Leanna, who has been. Uh, what episodes have you done? You did an episode about tattoos, and I think you did the you were in the ghost. Oh, ghost yeah. episode you did with mark and i yeah that was fun um and then we have our friend brian who uh and we'll talk about specifically why we asked brian to be involved in this um so liana you um well so you you chose our topic but i don't know that i can i don't even know exactly what to call the episode so how would you describe what our topic is today you could just call it depression i mean yeah, we want to draw in listeners, so let's, uh, <laughs> let's spice it up a little bit. There's a podcast out there called The Wonderful World of Depression. I feel like, like oh. we're, we're, we're getting close. Yeah, you know? yeah. We need to check that out. Um, no, I mean, I, I wanted to select this topic for its relevancy, um, given COVID, and how I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are experiencing depression maybe for the first time. Um, or in general to my friends, um, who might experience depression, not enough people talk about it. And I think there are also people out there who think they're aware of it, think they're familiar with it. Um, but maybe don't hear enough about it to be able to support people in their lives who may have it. And so I, you know, I definitely want to start by defining it um, and kind of going over some general statistics about depression. And then, you know, as with your podcast and, and the, the common theme in your podcast, looking at the history of um, or looking back into um, 
how things started or how ancient people Greece usually became aware of of things um and how you know things were treated uh just just to to put an interesting twist on it of course but i still think it's important to to just talk about it to to bring it to light and for people to uh to know that it's okay to talk about it and and to learn about it and so. just and remove that stigma a little bit because the, yeah. and that's one thing i did a lot of my research and we can talk about this but how the the stigma of mental health really developed, especially, um, you know, in this country, there's there's a lot of different stigmas. Some of it is racial, um, which in this country, some of it is racial. Should be like instead of you know under God, it's on the dollar. It, that really should be um, or tattooed on everyone's forehead. But uh, but it, this is no different. So. Well, do you want to start, Leanna, by, um, we were talking about maybe we need to, to define a few things before we get too deep into the conversation, and, and anybody else, especially you, Brian, feel free to jump in um, as we start to kind of go through a bit of this. Yeah. Well, and of course, as I mentioned, so, you know, in the spirit of this podcast, a lot's going to go into the history and some unethical methods of treatment and things like that. Um but the the pure definition, uh, I think, is a good, helpful start. I also want to put out there, though, that uh, depression is very nuanced, and um, there are many different levels, different degrees. And, um, you know, I think maybe Brian might uh, be defining a couple of different things um, as he's talking about treatments. Um, but basically, uh, I have I have a few things I want to read. Um, and get into, and you guys can feel free to stop me, but it's kind of long, but I really wanted to put this out here first on a, on a basic level for the, for the most part, what I'm going to be defining or talking about initially here is the, the most common, uh, which is major depressive disorder. Um, so it is defined as depression, um, most common being major depressive disorder, um, a serious medical illness that negatively affects how one feels thinks, and acts. Um, It can also be referred to as a mood disorder. In general, people with depression often feel an overwhelming sense of sadness and apathy, hopelessness, and despair. In some cases, it can feel difficult to get out of bed or complete normal tasks, and sadness can be so overwhelming that thoughts of suicide or death may accompany it. Signs and symptoms of depression. Different for every person, But to meet the criteria for clinical depression, you must exhibit several of the following symptoms for at least two weeks. Moodiness, um, lack of interest in activities, withdrawal from friends or family, problems at school or work, concentration issues, sadness or feeling empty, hopelessness, anxiety, low self-esteem, guilt, suicidal thoughts or thoughts of death, self-harming behavior, difficulty with memory or thinking clearly, inability to make decisions, engaging in escape behavior such as gambling, substance abuse, or dangerous sports. Did you say dangerous sports? Dangerous sports, yes. Ones that uh, pose a high risk for a serious injury or death, I suppose. So like hacky sack? Yes, definitely. Hacky sack. If your hacky sack is a grenade. <laughs> yes. That's true. <laughs> People with depression? They want to enjoy life, but they feel like such uh, enjoyment is impossible. The day is often bleak, 
and their self-confidence may be non-existent. As a result, motivation feels challenging and successes tend to be overlooked. Um, At times, depression symptoms overlap with other conditions like generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, or a substance use disorder. It can also coincide with physical conditions like diabetes, thyroid conditions, and vitamin deficiencies. Um, I want to make an important distinction as well. Um, Being sad is not the same as having depression. Uh, Grief, for example, with sadness. The grieving process is natural and unique to each individual and shares some of the same features of depression. Both grief and depression may involve intense sadness and withdrawal from usual activities. They are also different in important ways. In grief, painful feelings come in waves, often intermixed with positive memories. In major depression, mood and or interest or pleasures are decreased for most of two weeks or more. In grief, self-esteem is usually maintained. In major depression, feelings of worthlessness and self-loathing are common. In grief, thoughts of death may surface when thinking of or fantasizing about joining a deceased loved one. Um, In major depression, thoughts are focused on ending one's life due to feeling worthless or undeserving of living or being unable to cope with the pain of depression. Um, Grief and depression can coexist. For some people, the death of a loved one, losing a job, or being a victim of a physical assault or major disaster can lead to depression. Um, Something we're going through right now, um, when grief and depression co-occur, the grief is more severe and lasts longer than grief without depression. I also want to mention, too, that for those who have someone in their life who either diagnosed or undiagnosed may be exhibiting uh, depression, I think a lot of people who have trouble understanding it, they hear it, like everything I just read, and they're like, oh, I know somebody like that, or I'm like that. They still have trouble comprehending uh, what is like intrinsically causing that for them. And so it's important to remember that the people with depression, um, it's they can't just snap out of it. It's not um, laziness, um, and it's not a choice or a matter of willpower. So I just want to make sure that that was also said um, to, to help define what depression is. Um, if anybody wants to jump in, I have a couple more statistics, and then I'm, I'm, I'm good to set you guys up for looking at the the history, but I do have um, some, t- excuse me, some statistics to share. If that's cool. Sure. Absolutely. Can I, uh, I have a question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, did yeah. you pull that from the, uh, the DSM five? Yeah. I kind of wonder where the, where that information came from. So that's a, um, that's a mix of sources. Most of the stats I'm going to share are from the world health organization. Um, some from the Mayo clinic and, Psychiatry.org, the American Psychiatric Association, um, were things that I was pulling from. Cool. I kind of picked and choose the best parts of of all of those, I should say. The best parts, because this is a great topic, really fun. The Um, the highlights. Yeah. I mean, you guys are going to compose something peppy to like put under all this, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's just going to be like yakety sacks on the loop. That's common domain, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't think think anybody's going to question it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it is a um, very common mental disorder, depression. Globally, more than 264 million people of all ages suffer from depression. 
Um, it affects an estimated 1 in 15 adults in any given year. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to overall global burden of disease. One in six people will experience depression at some time in their life. On average, depression first appears during late teens to mid-20s, so young adults. Women are more likely than men to experience depression. Some studies show that one-third of women will experience a major depressive episode in their lifetime. Can I, can I counter, or not counter, but to tag on to that? Yeah, sure. L- looking at the National Institute of Mental Health, um, statistics from 2019, you say it's more prevalent in women. This is of, of, of any mental disorder, of AMIs, but um, they found 24.5% to 16.3% men versus women. So it's significantly higher. And also would mention that an estimated 51.5 million adults in the United States um, have some sort of uh, AMI, um, but only about... 45 percent in 2019 received any medical care uh, for their mental health issues i was going to say those numbers seem surprisingly low to me which one the overall like one in one in 15 one in 15 or, or one in six two it's, two it's 20, 200 million or something yeah that's it's 20.6 percent of the adult u.s population one in 15 um, it wouldn't be well. That's no, six percent. Yeah, no. Well, I don't know who said one in fifteen. Me. Oh, she's talking about depression. I'm talking about things that are considered any mental illness. Ah, AMI. We got bigger. That's okay. almost. That's bigger. But overall, that's that's almost twenty one percent of the total U.S. population of adults. Sorry. I, yeah. To clarify, my statistics are speaking of the the broad, as opposed to the um, serious mental illness, which is a different category. But I want to probe on that later, though. <laughs> actually brian can you just can you help me understand the difference in the category ami versus smi and what falls where i have kind of a definition here well, what, but, what, what do you what do you have because uh well this be is helpful. this is fr- so this is from national institute of mental health mm-hmm. so there are two categories any mental illness ami is defined as a mental behavioral or emotional disorder ami can vary in impact ranging from no impairment to mild moderate and even severe impairment so i'm guessing that depression anxiety things like that would fall in amis i mean that would probably degree uh, depend on the, the severity of the depression because it, okay uh, so it's not like the diagnosis is the severity that they're talking here. yeah so i'll go to i mean yeah serious versus any because like i'll go back to kind of something liana said and i want to clarify i know i haven't super been introduced in some ways but uh you know i uh, am a, a, solid, a, a empirical psychologist by training i am not a mental health professional i have my own experience with uh you know uh, it, mental illness and uh, therapy and uh, i'm a researcher by trained but i am not a uh, you know uh, a mental health professional in any way um but i would going back to you know my classes in they call it abnormal psychology um you know to meet the criteria for like major depressive disorder um like that was the one Leanna used that that was like the most common one that's discussed. There's there's uh in the DSM four, five, um, there's like five different depression uh things that are generally categorized or five that I remember the big ones. And so there's like depressive disorder, depressive mood disorder not categorized. 
And like that might be a, a case of depression that um, doesn't rise to the like physical inability to get out of bed, you know? Um, so like the, the severity of like what a serious mental illness would be, you know, cause your definition includes the phrase, which substantially interferes with or limits one or more major life activities. Um, yeah. It, it, well, I have a, there is a definition here from, uh, NIMH about serious mental illness, if it's helpful. Yeah, go for it. Uh, defined as a mental behavioral or emotional disorder resulting in serious functional impairment which substantially interferes with or limits one or more major life activities. The burden of mental illness, sorry, the burden of mental illnesses is particularly concentrated among those who experience this disability due to SMI. Yeah. And so depression is one of those unique diseases um, that, you know, we're, we're starting to see and understand more and more about like um, the neurochemistry behind it. Um, and, the degree to which that can affect one's functioning. So there's, you know, a mild depressive disorder or a moderate depressive disorder um, uh, that might make it hard to do some things you once loved. Um, but then there's also like, you know, major depressive disorder where literally all you, you end up doing is, you know, you're crying in bed um, or you can't eat and you lose a dramatic amount of weight. Um, you know, that would classify as serious. So like, if you're thinking about your, your bubble charts, there's any mental illness, which is the big circle. And then inside it is serious mental illness, um, that it severely impairs functioning, like something that might make you catatonic or specific forms of like bipolar disorder, where your manic episodes are, um, severely dangerous to oneself. Got it. Okay. So it's more when the when the disease has a holistic effect. Yeah, uh, well, I would argue that most of these diseases have a holistic effect. I think it's when it's it's, it's an, uh, an effect that can Im impairs function. You sure. know, having a cold versus you know having a full blown case of the flu is a, a lighter metaphor there. Yeah, you're sniffly. Yeah, you got a bit of a headache versus you're running a fever of 104. You you, know, yeah. you can't stop blowing your nose. Like the severity of those diseases is a is a way to think about it. Gotcha. That makes sense. I think you made a, an important distinction that we hadn't clarified that a lot of these conditions are caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And historically it maybe have been difficult to treat and diagnose because it's not an outward physical thing. So yeah, it's not tangible in the same way as like a, I don't know, a growth. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was a, there was a fellow named uh, Thomas Saz um, who was like a mental health professional, but also like, vehemently anti-diagnosis and like didn't believe in the idea of mental illness like his whole idea was that you um two things one you more have a disorder or uh, troubles with living is the way that he pointed it out but he also said that a disease has to show up on the autopsy table as well as during life for it to be a disease um which is yeah, to me like i kind of get this whole idea of like if we don't talk about it as illness but we talk about it as like the way that you cope with life maybe that's a way that we can move towards healing in some ways but 
he also like thought that people who referred to it as mental illness were just generally malingerers but like i i'm not going to put a lot of credit in there but he's not alone out there in believing that you know even amongst the psychoanalytic community that it's um not just it's not a physical thing but when you when we start talking you know as mark pointed out you know that now that we're starting to understand the chemical imbalance that does show up on an autopsy table so screw you thomas Saws. you know but from a physio- physiological standpoint i mean it doesn't it's not something you would see in an autopsy like cte or something where you're seeing mm-hmm. atrophy in the brain or or, or something like right. alzheimer's but mm-hmm. um but you yeah but now that we understand it better so you're saying that at the time when he had that opinion, mm-hmm. we did not have the understanding we have mm-hmm. now about chemical imbalances, serotonin and all that good stuff. Okay. Yeah, he, I want to say he was in the '70s. I, I read his I read his book, sorry, um, back in in a class in undergrad uh, called uh, On Madness, and it's mm-hmm. it's a big treatise. I don't like recommend it as under as just like you know, uh, light reading, but. It's one of those instances like you're circling around a point that I can kind of get behind, but then when you dive a little bit deeper, I'm like, oh, no thanks. Right. So yeah, I was just gonna say, Mark, to your point, you know, yes, um, biological factors play a huge role um, in in depression. Um, also, other causes, history of trauma, family history of depression, mm-hmm. long term isolation or loneliness, prolonged work stress, drug or alcohol use, serious medical illness, and um, to the to the the point about family history, I have a stat on that that forty uh, percent. There's a high degree of heritability, approximately forty percent, when first degree relatives, parents, children, or siblings have depression. Um, and that is actually true for me and my family. Um, which I, I just thought that was really interesting. I saw another stat that said if you know there's a uh, if there's a set of twins and one of them has depression, there's a seventy percent likelihood that that sibling would also have depression. Was that an identical twin study or a fraternal twin study? Um, it didn't say. I'm just guess. Twin. I assume that's an identical twin study. I'm going to assume the same. Yeah, those are kind of like the gold standard if you can catch them. You know, when it comes to like studying genetics. <laughs> Yep. Um, I just have a couple more stats. Um, close to eight, 800,000 people die um, to suicide every year. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death in 15 to 29-year-olds. And I guess maybe this might be a helpful transition. So although there are known effective treatments for mental disorders between 76% and 85% of people in low- and middle-income countries receive no treatment for their disorder. Barriers to effective care include a lack of resources, lack of trained healthcare providers, and social stigma associated with mental disorders. Another barrier to effective care is inaccurate assessment. In countries of all income levels, people who are depressed are often not correctly diagnosed, and others um, who do not have the disorder are too often misdiagnosed and prescribed antidepressants, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I was reading an article. It was uh, on the history of depression, or on the uh, history of mental illness and what we're, you know, the things that we called it. Uh, but it also then had a, a quantitative uh, bent to it where it was looking at 
the experiences of stigma scale. And when they, the, I think the, the meta-analysis came back that said one in four uh, reported experiences of stigma, even from their own mental health provider. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it, it's, I, I have the things that I would blame for why it's easy to, I'm going to say misdiagnose or, you know, get ineffective treatment. Um, and I think a lot of it comes to kind of the very vague nature that we use in diagnosis. Um, like, you know, the things that you listed off, Leanna, are like how it's written in the DSM. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, if we pointed out, it's not like breaking a bone. It's not like when you have a white blood cell count higher than this. Um, it, there's no way to quantify it. So it's when you experience several of the following other vague things. Um, you know, and so it's very easy if you don't have the right fit with your therapist or you don't have the right fit with your you know, general practitioner who will either be the person who will just prescribe you medication based on what they understand for the rep or, you know, refer possibly refer you to a therapist. Um, you know, it's a tricky business. Mm-hmm. This is a tough question, but you mentioned right and wrong fit with a therapist or with a counselor. Yeah. You know, how do you, if somebody listening has, has that issue and they, they've had a hard time finding somebody that they, they like to work with in that way, do you, have, you know, to you, what is a sign of a good or a bad fit? Is it, is it, is it, are we talking really just good and bad professionals here? Or is it truly like a, there's just a personality fit? I mean, I'm sure that there are bad, bad mental health professionals, just like there are sure. bad every professionals. Um, <laughs> I, I also think that there's a personality fit to it. When I was, you know, seeing a, a mental health professional, he described it to me as like, my goal is for you to feel the need or feel the, um, freedom to see less and less of me like you're you're working yourself out of a job uh as a mental health professional in that way because you are equipping someone and and this will depend on you know the 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 school of psychotherapy that you prescribe or or ascribe to as well yeah so you like you like that approach i i did because the idea was that he, he was going to give me tools by which I, I could manage the, you know, the, the issues in my life, um, that I could find where I was and didn't, I felt more in control, you know, uh, what was going on because I, I had some issues around anxiety, uh, that drove me to, uh, seek help. Uh, it was in my last days of grad school when I was, you know, sending out a hundred or so applications every other month and getting either crickets or nothing back and just all that kind of worry that comes with it. So, um, you know, getting the tools to kind of handle that anxiety and handle the, the, the depression that can come with it, uh, as well was super useful for me. Um, and once you're at that, that state of functioning, then I don't know, I, I would have been fine to continue to see him to talk about other things that perhaps I might want to resolve in myself if there because you can see a mental health professional in fact i would argue it's great to see a mental health professional when you feel like nothing is wrong uh because to be equipped with the tools that you have um or the tools that could make life easier uh before problems arise always a good thing 
Um, in fact, you know, that's something that you also see in like couples counseling. The best time to go see a couples counselor is when everything's hunky dory and go talk about and like build your conflict resolution skills when you're all happy with each other. If you can't, if you walk into a couples counselor when you're already screaming in every conversation, that count that counselor, you know, will have their work cut out for them. Not to say it's impossible, but um, you know, sometimes it's always just a good check to, to have a talk about what's rattling around in your your head. I can speak to this a little bit. I see a therapist currently. I don't know if I ever mentioned that. Yeah. Super openly. Me, yeah. yeah. I think it's really great. Um, where I am in my life right now, I've been dealing with anxiety more than ever before. Um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily feel depressed, but I often feel anxious or guilty about things that I know are not really an issue or shouldn't be an issue. And having someone else who doesn't really have a stake in it to just kind of talk to and get another point of view is a very helpful thing. Um, I saw a different counselor a few years ago and he was sort of a younger guy closer to my age and we would talk about music and stuff sometimes. And it kind of came to the point where I would talk to him and he'd be like, man, yeah, that sucks. And it sort of felt like... <laughs> He comes from that school of that sucks. <laughs> well, it just felt like I kind of outgrew my experience with him. Mm -hmm. So sure. more recently I decided I feel like I should find another counselor and found a guy who is a little, a little older than me. Um, easy to talk to, very nice, very encouraging. And I see him every two weeks. And because I schedule my appointments at the end of the day, I don't know, we end up having a two-hour session every two weeks. And part of that is just kind of bullshitting and talking about whatever is going on. That's kind of nice in its own way, not really the reason why I'm going. But I like him, and, and it's a helpful thing for me to do. Um, can, can I ask, is there... Yeah. Uh, I don't want to dive deep into the, the level of the therapy, obviously, you know, uh, that you might want to say, do you... Does it? Is it... A therapy that involves homework? Not really. He gives me okay. like a little thing to check in and it asks like in the past week, have you felt this way, this way, and this way? And usually mm -hmm. I feel uh, fill it out in sort of the same way. Um, but well, that's great. That means any, any derivation will be a, a, a flag to him. Yeah. You know? I, I feel like maybe I need to ask him some more direct questions about what to do, how to handle this sort of situation. Um, and we, we talk about a variety of things that happen through the week. It's nothing specific. Um, my, my wife also deals with severe anxiety and depression above the level that I do. And some of what mm -hmm. we talk about is how to help her and deal with some of the challenges that come about from being with someone in a relationship who deals with other issues. And I know I don't want to speak for her too much, but there are days where it is challenging for her to, to get up and be productive and get out of bed and do the things that she feels like she's expected to do. Yeah. Um, and me to a certain extent or her mother or other people sort of approach her issue as, 
well, just get up and do it, brush it off. But it's not that simple. I think depression is a great thing for people to to try to be as open as they feel like they can be about mm -hmm. it and talk about it because to a certain extent, other people can relate to it in whatever kind of way and you aren't alone in the thing that you're going through. For her, maybe it is difficult for me sometimes to know how exactly she's feeling because it is a very personal internal thing to go through. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about it and she's told me before the, the thing about mental illness being sort of an invisible illness or something that's hard to diagnose and other people's reactions to it sort of make her feel discredited. Like she's the one making it up or creating an issue or whatever. And I know that that's not the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think it's important to, to try to speak from this, from a personal point of view as someone who maybe has a different sort of point of view. Like you can cite all the statistics, but it's different when you're going through it or you're, you're living with someone who's also going through it in a pretty serious way. She had what to her was a traumatic experience a couple of years ago, and it's been pretty bad since then, but we're now getting to a point where things are starting to get a little bit better. Um, so the feelings about it have sort of ebbed and flowed and changed over time, but the, the core things of feeling like you did something wrong, you're letting people down, you're lazy, you're not being productive, feeling down, like I feel anxious about money a lot or about things that I can't control like politics or things, global warming, things going on in the world um, or like somebody is mad at me for some reason. Like I, we helped my uncle with something recently and he texted me and wanted us to come help and couldn't do it. Cause it was like two days before Christmas. And I felt like, well, was he going to be disappointed with me that I couldn't <laughs> go or, Hey, somebody else lived that same situation <laughs> <laughs> or are, are Dave, are you going to be mad at me that I didn't text you back or something? But fuck. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I, I saw something the other day that said, you know what? You're an adult. Double text. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Double text. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that, that we're all being personal because I, I think that there's no way to have this conversation in a purely statistical way. Because even when I was... Well, first of all, I'm going to cut in because... I'm not being personal. No, well, I want to cut in because when I was <laughs> talking to you about what I was going to talk about, you're like, well, yeah, get the good statistics in there. And I'm thinking like... All right. So, yeah, that's cool to, to throw out statistics. We want people to learn something and take something away, understand the magnitude of how everything's affected globally. But to me, it is important to talk about the personal so that people Statistics are important, but to, to convey that someone else in a personal way is feeling the same way as you are is a lot more powerful than a statistic. I, I think my, my point for digging into the statistics was more about that's part of lowering the stigma. This many people are having a common experience. I know. I understand. I'm not, so that, I'm not that's, criticizing that's what I was that. At. I, I have a whole bunch of statistics and all kind of other shit that I want to talk about, but I, I didn't want, want to feel like this was too much of a clinical type of discussion. No, honestly, the way that this is going right now is the way that we should continue, I think. I mean, when I was mentioning to Leanna the statistic, the statistics that I was looking at, I mentioned that I feel like this paints only a small portion of the picture, 
because it doesn't take into account like it made a point to say that like Asian American adults are least affected statistically by mental illness, but culturally in Asian cultures, it's less likely to express those things or to see a therapist. And I think we talked about this in another one of our episodes. Um, so cultural differences skew the numbers. Am I, I'm not wrong about that. Am I, anybody disagree? Of course not. Uh, so one of the things that I think we're kind of driving around here is that, um, to, first of all, mental illness is unlike any other lived experience because it is something that generally, while it can affect those around you, the person who is experiencing it is you. And it is of course, less alienating it to know that perhaps someone is having an experience, well, not wholly yours, one that they can identify with in some ways. I would never say that my anxiety is the same as Mark's anxiety. I doubt that Leanna would say that her depression is the same as someone else's depression. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a snowflake thing. No two are alike. But the the other part of it not only being you know a, a lived experience, but it being culture. I, I think one of the hardest things in the world is to define what a culture is especially in the United States. Exactly. Um, and I think the best definition that I've ever come across was what I learned. And I'm going to throw a shout out here to Dr. Fia Salter and her cultural psychology course at Texas A&M. Um, culture is shared pattern. If there is a pattern that I participate in that you understand, then you and I share part of a culture. God, it's like it's the same definition that our friend Emily gave of what a language is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, similar. It's, it's it's similar to that. So it's but it culture is not just you know it, culture includes language, but it's also like yeah, uh, it, it's saluting is a form of culture that I don't ha- I don't attach the same meaning to a salute as someone else is going to because I don't know what I'm doing. Do I do it like this? Am I going to do it like this? You know, um, and obviously, you know, the podcast. This is wonderful audio. Uh, uh, you know, for people who see me saluting and not saluting on this call. Um, well, to clarify, he's doing it, I think, wrong every time, but I also don't know. Yeah, it's, it's not a culture I participate in. Um, and so, like, there is also, therefore, a culture around mental illness and depression. Um, and, and honestly, I, I plug for, for a bit of media that is entirely crass and in many ways awful, one of the best representations of depression that I have seen um, recently was on the Netflix show Big Mouth. Um, oh man! With, with yeah. the, the, de- the and depression, and anxiety, and Tito the anxiety mosquito. Um, yeah. Because yeah, it's it's it, there is levity involved in it, but that's the idea: is it's it's an invasive thought, um, mm. or it's, it's it's a feeling of a weight on you that you know is is entirely personal. Um, and, but, you know, people who have experienced depression, they're like, you know what? It does sound good to lay in bed and watch an umpteen episodes of the Gilmore Girls or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a shared, it's a shared experience that is wholly personal as well. Hi, my name is Kaylin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Tea Time Thoughts. Do you ever wish you could learn more about history, books, music, art, and culture, but you just don't know where to start? I totally feel your pain. Learning about all these things can be so overwhelming. Well, I want to change all of that for you. 
In my podcast, Tea Time Thoughts, I'll show you just how fun it all can be. In the time it takes to have a cup of tea, I'm going to teach you everything from the French Revolution to the Black Plague, Mozart to Broadway musicals, Da Vinci to Robert Frost, Ancient Egypt to Queen Elizabeth II, and more. You can stream Tea Time Thoughts wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Put the kettle on and listen to Tea Time Thoughts today. Well, you know, since we've all shared a bit, I'll say that I, I've seen a, a, a counselor twice in my life on two, two separate occasions. Um, I know that I, I probably should again, because I, I have issues with anxiety. I also have compulsive issues. Yes. Very bad. I can confirm this. Um, I'm very compulsive. Um, like, as a hypochondriac, it plays into that sort of, that whole thing. Um, and I remember the the... The first time I saw a counselor, I, you know, it's one of those things when you can feel it's a little bit of a personality clash, which is why I was asking about that issue. I also, in a different relationship, saw a a couple's counselor, and I tend to be a little snippy, and this gentleman didn't have a wedding ring on, and I thought, I don't care about your opinion. So I've I've when I've gone into sessions of therapy, I have not gone in as openly as I should. And that has been my problem. And I think why I never stuck with it. That makes sense. I mean, I And that's I, me, that's a me thing, not a them thing. I had a I had a couple couple other things I wanted to mention about counselor stuff. The two counselors that I saw I found through psychologytoday.com. They have listings on there of um psychologists and counselors and therapists and things in your area and you can search through a variety of different filters for me i wanted to find um a male who was sort of close to my age assuming that they would have a similar experience that could relate to the things that i wanted to talk about i don't think that i would have been as comfortable talking to uh, an older woman or like a very young woman or something like that. Not to say that their professionalism is not there. It's sort of a personal vibe relationship sort of thing. Um, My wife told me one time that she went and saw a counselor and this person's office was so messy that it triggered her anxiety Mm. more. Interesting. Things like that are important as well. Um. And then that's fair. Like that might not bother somebody else, but if it bothers her, it's worth maybe not her saying it to that therapist, but for her to make note of it and maybe not continue down that path. Yeah. And she also had a a string of people that she saw a few times and really liked, but our insurance through my work changed or they didn't accept insurance and it was going to be prohibitively expensive. There are all these other hoops with insurance and how to get the medication that you need and all this other stuff that makes some of these issues even harder to do what you need to do to feel better about it. And also the, the whole thing of laying in bed and and whatever that kind of needs to be destigmatized a little bit. I think that society Mm. puts a lot of pressure on you have to be productive all the time or else you're not doing what you're supposed to do. But there's nothing really wrong with it unless you're let it, letting somebody else down in a serious way. But it, yeah, I mean, one, one to that point that I, I agree that it's um, it's often used as an example of anhedonia, you know, which is a symptom of depression, which is the inability to find pleasure in things or, you know, it's a lack of, of um, 
motivation in that way. And yeah, it, within American society where there is that Protestant work ethic, then that runs counter to it. So I'm fine with the, uh, actually, I, I really encourage the idea. Of, I think that's a good point to make, Mark, uh, that destigmatizing. I have a lot of hobbies and things that I enjoy doing that are sort of relaxing for me. Every once in a while, I will not feel in the mood to do it, won't feel mm -hmm. motivated. Right. But only uh, once in a while. I feel like I struggle with that a lot. I've been struggling with it more so than usual. I've been working on my little models and stuff recently. And that's sort of like a, a Zen out relax sort of thing for me to do sometimes. But I have to be in the right frame of mind to want to do it. I guess you have to be yeah. that that way with any kind of creative thing. Or sometimes I'll, I'll just feel very restless. Like, I, I, I don't want to do this. I want to do something, but I don't know what I want to do. Dave, like, you, maybe you struggle with, like, the desire to work on certain things, but you, you keep yourself busy all day, every day. My you, brother you, calls me, my brother who's a lawyer calls me the busiest person he knows. Yeah, he, you know, and that, that might be part of, of your anxiety, you know, your anxiety that, you know, you have to feel productive maybe in your own mind. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and what's actually interesting is how that plays off on me um, where I see you like that, but I, I struggle to do anything. Like I, I, I'm like the opposite of productive throughout the day, I feel, and that makes me feel worse about myself because I see this other person who is... It, it, at least outwardly motivated and productive and, you know, living and alive and doing things when I myself am not. And well, it's, it makes it harder for me to, to feel less bad about myself. <laughs> and, I, and I understand that. And I, you know, but don't confuse productivity with happiness. You know, for me, I struggle because I feel anxious when I feel like I'm not being productive. And as a result, sometimes my productivity or my um, my attempts at being productive are empty and then I can't relax. So it has a lot of counter effects. So it's not a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an anxiety soother more so than an interest. It's, it's chasing down the anxiety. It doesn't soothe it. There's only a few things that soothe it, but you know, for, you know, Mark's example of doing fine scale models, for me, it's playing video games. Like, you know, and I like certain things. Like unless I like, you're losing. Unless I, <laughs> yeah, unless I wake Leanna up in the morning because I'm screaming, motherfucker! So, but I like to play, I like to play sports video games because I like statistics. I like to play whole seasons of sports games with my brother and then at the end of the year, look at all of the numbers and all of the data. For yeah. some reason, that's very soothing to me. And for each uh, for us to see how much better we're doing in different things, I like seeing progress. That's why I like mowing the lawn. <laughs> because I like to see... Because so many, so many things that I do, and I think I've talked to Mark especially about this before, that like, as a songwriter, for example, you know, it's the kind of creative endeavor where you can put a week's work, of really hard work into it, and maybe come out with nothing. Nothing at all that you're happy with or will ever keep. So the, the progress is not something you can actually see. Mowing the lawn, every line, I can see that progress. And I don't have a lot of things in my life that have that sort of concrete, linear progress. So I like mowing the lawn. I like doing the dishes. I like to be able to see the results in real time. What I'm There's so many things that I do. I struggle with that. 
what I'm hearing is that it'd be a really good April Fool's joke, Leanna, if you want to go and adjust the blade height on the lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. I love cutting their grass. <laughs> I like the smell that's of cut time. grass. Oh, I hate that's, the smell of cut grass. <gasps> oh, my no! God. I it love just makes it. me feel like a kid. That it, and sprinkler, like sprinkler gives, water. Yeah, gives oh, me a headache. But I, I assume see, it's I can't allergy stand. related. I'm sorry. I can't stand gasoline. So once we got an electric lawnmower, it's like, but I mean, I, I do. I'm meticulous about trying to take care of the yard. And again, it's just because you should have seen this fall when the leaves were full. Because we just moved into a new house. So I didn't really have a sense for when the leaves were going to fall on different trees. You kind of get used to that every season because they're, you know, different fall at different times. And I was getting real picky. Like I would rake up all the leaves, get really excited. And the next day it would just like shit leaves on my Dump. yard. And it's because I want to see that progress. I mean, Mark knows, like with the podcast, how much do I text you about data? Like, hey, you we text me all the time. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I don't text you text back you sometimes. Back. Because <laughs> I'm not making fun of you. It's not personal or anything. But I don't, I don't need to know how many downloads we got at 1030 at night. I'm <laughs> you might you might think it's a lot, but it's like it's like a couple times a week. I probably text Joe like forty times a day. <laughs> Lately, we've been doing some like home improvement projects, and over the weekend, we started to wall off a uh, a doorway in between our dining room and our kitchen that we're going to turn into a guest room. I did not know how to do this. I didn't like. I kind of understood it. And it's it's not finished yet because we need to go get some more supplies and stuff for it. But the idea of doing this kind of project and doing a thing that I don't I don't feel confident that I can do it to the high standard that I have for myself makes me feel anxious about it. I feel you. Yeah, 100% I understand feel that. You there. I'm worried that I'm going to put a lot of work into it and then it look like shit. But. Martha's Wor- guitar worse comes on, to it exactly the same thing i feel that way about projects i feel that way about my model sometimes this new guitar that i bought i thought about for like months and months before i was able to pull the trigger and buy something and i'm still not happy with it i don't think i'm ever going to be happy with it but this this wall thing i should feel like even if I fuck it up, somebody else is going to come and fix it. It's not the end of the world. I can take it down. Or, or you'll fix it. Or, you'll or I'll learn it. more about it and fix it. But for some reason, I feel so anxious about trying to build this dumb wall in my house. It's hard. One, one thing I've noticed with projects for me is that like, it's hard to get over the hurdle of getting started. Like if I'm anxious oh, about yeah. doing something, like like I had this guitar neck, right? And I, my tuners just came in, so I want to install them. I've never done that before. And I've read a ton of things. I've watched tons of videos. I feel like I can do it, but I'm going to have anxiety until I actually sit down and start marking the holes and putting it off and just, well, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll mark uh, is like, that's the anxiety relief, but then nothing gets done. With anything, starting is the hardest part. But once you start, it's usually fine. Like when I used to be an Uber driver, I dreaded having to go and do it. But once I started, it was fine. I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Remember when we were substitute teachers and we dreaded going and then we'd go and it was as bad as we thought, if not worse. And then we stopped. Children are the (laughs) worst. I say that as a proud parent. (laughs) Brian, what were you going to say? Um, 
Well, I, I, I had a question based off this as well, but like in my experience as, you know, a corporate drone, nothing gives me more anxiety than a blank slide that I have to create. Like, oh yeah, tell us a story on this. Fine. Uh, but I, this, this brings me to a question I've been kind of pondering because um, we're talking about progress here. How do you define success with the idea of a therapist? With a therapist? I thought, I thought you were going to stop. I thought you were going to stop at how do you define success? No, no, no. We're not. <laughs> Good question. No, okay. no, no, no. Like so. That's a t- really tough. So that, that's a, that's a question because, like, you know, to me, what I talked about was like, you know, working myself to a place that my skills were in, in good shape, and I felt that the therapist was challenging me to build those skills. You know, but that's my definition. Of I don't. Success. I don't necessarily and, feel challenged, but I don't really have an expectation. Okay. I probably should though. And, and it's interesting because it's a, there is a, a whole layer um, in the ecosystem out there around diagnoses and insurance that rely on us meeting certain criteria and exhibiting certain symptoms so that if your therapist accepts insurance, that they can bill them accordingly. And what's going on? I ran into a number of issues with insurance with my previous therapist uh, back in Austin, and we worked through them. But it was, uh, you know, a major source of anxiety. I was a grad student. It's not like I was rolling around in dough. You know, uh, the, the sweet podcast dollars weren't coming in for me. So, well, the shitty state of our healthcare system is a whole other episode. Yes. <laughs> But I, I directly affects the men- oh yeah, and directly affects the prevalence of mental health crises. Uh, yeah, you know, sure, yeah, you know, and and Leanna, you earlier said you know, you know something that like we're experiencing, uh, like COVID, and how that affects the you know the diagnoses and rate of true depression. I mean, this is traumatic. This experience, in my opinion, is traumatic, and it is a um, there will be lasting mental health. Um, repercussions of the year that we were supposed to stay away from one another. I had a friend who told me the other day that she has not had a handshake or a hug or basically human touch in nine months in any way. And I was like, that is a long time to go without a hug, you know? Yeah. I'm very glad to not live alone through all this. Mm -hmm. Hi honey. (laughs) Because I think, you know, I think you're right. This is a traumatic experience for people but it's not a singular traumatic experience when a lot of times traumatic something in your life is like a singular event this is spread out over so much time that i think a lot of people might not realize the trauma Mm -hmm. and the symptoms that they may be experiencing because of it because it's sort of this this gradual buildup. i mean i if you want my my absolutely armchair futurist prediction it's that that people will talk about the children of the COVID generation, like we talk about our grandparents who were hoarders because they were children of the depression generation. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. Some of the symptoms of depression that you mentioned earlier, Leanna, I was going to comment things like, um, I don't know what, what word you use, estrangement from friends or relatives, um, isolation, things like that are, are things that we are now sort of forced into. And, and are affecting people. I know, Dave, that this situation is kind of affecting you to a degree, right? 
Oh, I mean, absolutely. I don't know exactly to what you're referring, but well, you just you you told me that you hadn't left your house in a whole month. That's not normal behavior for you. So it's affecting you in some way that you it's you feel a certain way about it. Yeah, I it's you know I I like being at home, and I don't mind so much the time at home. And part of that is like. We moved into this new house that we're really happy with, and that, and then Leanna is here. But it's affecting me because, you know, we're trying to continue to play music. But whenever everybody comes over to play music, we have to be very distant. It doesn't feel the same sort of connection. Not it, it, to me, it's it's like those experiences that I've always relied on to relieve my anxiety, performing for an audience, or even just going to work and seeing the people that I've worked with for so long. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm missing. It's not the the like I you know not leaving the house, not running errands. It's like as time has built up, not seeing the people that I'm used to seeing as frequently, not seeing my parents hardly at all. Um, I mean, what how they they came to see the house in June. That's the only time we've seen them in in person in this whole experience. And obviously that that visit was very awkward and distant and largely outside and. You know, so it's been, you know, like I've learned that I really like working from home, but it it that doesn't mean that um that I like the the disconnection. I didn't mean anything by bringing that up. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I just I, like, I've been going I don't in, like I've been going into the office and like my parents came to visit a couple of times and we've been out and, and do things that are like somewhat normal. But it's it's taking away taking away that sense of normalcy and the things that that you want to do like i haven't seen you guys in person i haven't seen a lot of other friends in a long time and it feels kind of hollow to just go through and do what you got to do without doing a lot of the things that you want to do you know to mm-hmm. me it's a i feel a lot of anger and i know leanna brings this up from time to time too she'll go on facebook and she'll see like, oh, somebody should do they had this big family gathering or they went on vacation, things that we obviously should not be doing. And you feel like, oh, I wish I could go do that. And it's like this anger inducing one, because I wish I could do that. And two, because I want to smack you because you're doing that. And and that's the kind of stuff that for me just fills that, you know, I can't see my family for the holiday. And then I see this like 25 person gathering. And one, I don't want anything bad to happen to these people. And two, I feel like they're being selfish and then it's just that anger. And that's where I am with it. That's caused me a lot of frustration. Yeah. It's a frustrating situation. Like we've been pretty careful about everything, but maybe haven't taken it as seriously as you have. I've been, I mean, I, maybe it's my hypochondriac tendencies, but I've been following guidelines. Is all I can say. I, mean, I think I, everyone should, should I impro- take it seriously and follow the guidelines. But I've been, I, but I've been pretty, in, you know, pretty intense about it. But again, part of that is because I don't deal with the the anxiety that comes with having to be at home that some people do. Like I'm comfortable at home. A lot of the things that I do and work on, like I can do in my home. Not everybody is like that, and so, like. I that's one benefit for me is that it's lowered my anxiety because I don't mind being home. But people that don't like being home, like this is this is like torture. This is like, you know, 
picking the, the wings off of a fly very slowly. I imagine that's what it must feel like. But at the same time, you know, that's not a good excuse to be unsafe, but the, 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 the pool is there and it's real. And at some point, it's your own mental health that we're talking about versus your physical health. So how do you balance that in a pandemic? I think the only way you balance it is for some people is risk. And then well, that's scary. And, you know, talking to people, like, you know, like talking to a professional, I, I think people are kind of downplaying their own mental health going through this traumatic experience of COVID and not understanding that they can use this as an opportunity to talk to someone and understand that this is how others who deal with it, but sans COVID, uh, you know, by, by seeking help from a professional. Um, and so I, I kind of feel that way about, you know, some folks that I've talked to who, you know, clearly this has been really hard for them. They do need that social interaction. They need to get out. And it's like, okay, I understand that, uh, that feeling, that urge, you know, and because it's not maybe safe to do so, let's get you talking to somebody who can help you through, you know, your each scenario or whatever. I mean, if I can give a suggestion, it would be start a podcast because if I didn't have, you know, if I wasn't talking with Mark and Joe in a podcast every week, it would be especially strange. Like it's weird to do it through screens, but at least we've been able to stay connected consistently. You know, I realized that we hadn't talked to our friend Ryan in a while and we had a zoom call with him a few weeks ago and like he really needed it. And I think I really needed to talk to him and we hadn't really talked to each other. And there's so much possibility to do it now. It's just, it feels weird to do it through a screen. It's like accepting the situation. Uh, it's it better it than real, nothing. But it has definitely helped when I've, you know, done it. And, and again, I think the podcast for me has been great to have that every week. Yeah. It's good to have some consistency. And I have some other friends who I haven't talked to in a really long time. And I should probably text and reach out to. <laughs> I will say... Um, in terms of getting help uh, or talking to a professional in this current environment, it is uh, it can be especially tricky. Um, I've seen three or four counselors now at this point in my life, and I'm still trying to find the right fit. Um, the last one that I saw, everyone has been perfectly pleasant, you know, and that's part of their job is to listen and be as pleasant as possible. Um, I, I wasn't, I think, vibing, I guess, with um, my last counselor. And what made it more difficult was COVID because it was through, you know, they don't use Zoom, but they use, you know, a, a video conferencing technology. And half the time we'd be talking and she would cut out and disappear, you know, or we'd have to reconnect, reset. And it became so frustrating um, and we'd have to end up making it a phone call, which is even more distance, you know, uh, from the professional. And so it just felt really weird. And I'm not saying all this uh, to discourage anyone who is thinking about getting a help during COVID. You definitely should still um, try to video conference and, and talk to a professional. Um, but it does add a new layer to um, it being a little bit more complicated when you're when you're looking for help. Uh, during these times I, th I think it's just all an ad for zoom <laughs> and with that we'd like to thank our sponsor zoom <laughs> uh, consistent conference calling in an inconsistent world yeah <laughs>
<laughs> Do you think maybe that some of the approach and stigma around mental health is maybe a generational thing? Because I remember talking to my parents and telling them, like, look, I'm seeing a counselor and I feel this way sometimes. And my, my mom was like, oh, gosh, are you okay? And then I, I think I think it is for sure. And I, I told her more recently, like, hey, I'm seeing a therapist again. And she was like, oh, that sounds good. Maybe we should all see a therapist. And I was like, she's right. Prob- should. Probably should. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had never thought of it. Like you said, Brian, that the time to see a therapist might be when everything seems fine. I mean, like to your point, you know, what if I were going to go, what would I want to get out of it? Obviously, I'd be going for specific reasons. But, you know, I mean. You get trying a, to gain those skills when when things seem clear. I I had never thought of it that way. You you get a physical most years, hopefully, you know. Yeah. But what's what's wrong with a, a checkup like that? In some ways, it's it's obviously it's hard to do. Uh, a physical is a bad um, example because it's a one time check, and you know, being that therapy is about the relationship and interplay between the the patient and the therapist, you know one session but, but I know, is I know difficult and and then in most cases like if they're again because of the current state of u.s healthcare, if you are not diagnosed with something it's going to become expensive really really fast um you know um and you know i mean there's i think generations is, is a form of the, the cultural stigma i think there are um you know identity groups that also will uh stigmatize and then there's the there's even people who just by the work ethic, you know, just like, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps will have their own types of, uh, you know, stigmas around this. And we're, we're talking about some of the less, um, I'm going to call them apparent, but that's not a good way to describe it, uh, types of, of mental uh, illnesses. You know, we're, we're not talking about, you know, other forms of this area with like, you know, personality disorders, which are pervasive. Um, things like uh, schizophrenia, which um, admittedly there was some debate for a while about what it actually is and does it actually exist or have we come up with this weird thing that we can't diagnose and so we just call it schizophrenia. Um, you know, um, you know. so what I would consider, Dave, to what you said earlier, the more serious mental illness um, or is that, was that the, Yes, serious mental illness was the serious definition. Mental, yeah. yeah, as opposed to any yeah. mental illness, um, and, and so it's maintaining one's own mental health is a is a. I believe that, and I want to hope that it's not one of those things that we say is something that's happening in the current generation, um, but it's one of those things that happens in every generation. You know, but that, that we are, in fact, a bit of a, at a watershed moment where there's enough interest, there's enough research, there is enough care among the community to begin the process of destigmatization um, and begin the encouragement of, of good mental health. I think the um, evidence of bad mental health is more and more prevalent, especially in America. Um, it's it's a long road, but you know, you, you also see like, I, I just pray it's not one of those things that generationally, uh, like the newspaper, people said that 
young people had their noses in the newspaper and they would forget about how to have conversations. You know, they talked about the newspaper like we talk about cell phones or, you know, what, how we will talk about virtual reality one day. Um, you know, and, and so I, I pray it's not one of those situations. Um, but in this case, incremental change is the best way to go. Hearing you talk a little bit about that got me to think that, you know, anxiety and depression and mental health issues are a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes it difficult to talk about in some ways, because I know that my anxiety about money or building a, a fucking wall in my house or something stupid is not the same as someone who is dealing with a, an identity issue or is maybe of a different race and dealing with different issues that I as a, a white man don't face. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, me personally, and I'm sure that other people feel this way, that I don't want me using a platform to talk about my anxiety takes anything away from the anxieties of anyone else. Sure. It's not, it's not a competition, right? Like, I mean, like that's, I think that in your own head, sometimes it, the severity feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like when someone says, well, we're all going through this COVID thing together. It's, you know, well, well, yes, but and the, the metaphor that I, I go back to is we are not, we're all weathering the same storm, but we're not all, not all in the same boats. Some of us have yachts. Some of us have dinghies. Some of us are clinging to driftwood. And some of us are literally treading water during the storm. Um, but it, it, and so we have different means of experiencing it. And I think mental health is kind of the same way. Um, just to say that it might be difficult for you and your boat doesn't take away from the fact that someone else is also you know, experiencing something and how can we instead band together and get us on the same boat so that we are, are all on the same boat and weathering the same storm. And like, that's, that's a, you know, that's something I think about, like, what am I going to do? You know, and, and, and the answer to that isn't typically uh, to not seek help for myself, for my own mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, Mark, it's I understand your your want to clarify that or to 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 say that at the same time you don't want to downplay your own uh feelings and thoughts and what you're going through by saying, "Well, somebody else has it worse than me." Uh that's one of my least favorite things. I mean, just to to Brian's analogy about we're all in in different vessels or boats going through a similar experience with COVID with, with depression, you know, you hear the, like, Oh, eat your, eat your dinner or do whatever because somebody else doesn't have food to make you feel guilty kind of a thing. Um, yes. Recognizing that people do have very vastly different circumstances and vastly different, um, experiences is important to recognize but also don't don't downplay your own self um i have trouble doing that too because then to brian's point some people decide not to seek help because they see that other people quote unquote have it worse and then they go well mine's not so bad so i don't need to talk to somebody about it that's exactly what i what i was trying to say yeah it's the same way with wh whether or not you decide to take medication 
well, I, I don't think my problem is that bad that I need to take medication for it. And that stigmatizes, you know, the need to take medication. My wife takes medication, but I don't feel any certain way about it. It helps her. Yeah, medication is its its, its own form of the stigma. You know, um, it's 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 a it's an extra added layer, I think, because it's it's one thing to say that you know I'm depressed. It's another thing to say I'm depressed and I take this particular medication because it it sounds like an extra crutch, I think, or or the, the stigma is that it is an extra crutch. I don't. I, I'm with you there, Mark. It's not, you know. In fact, one of the pieces of research I found, uh, you know, doing this was that, you know, when it comes to, it was panic attacks that they were studying specifically, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, plus a, um, I think they called it a collaborative care methodology of psychopharmatherapy, um, showed the best results and the longest longest um, stints of remission of panic attacks. You know, so you, you pair therapy and, and medication together for certain situations in a collaborative way, better outcomes. But, you know, getting the right kind of medication have, to be a problem, too. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, and stigma around needing, I, I think it goes back to what you were talking about, Mark, about, you know, this urge for us to be a productive society. The idea that you are ill can be counter to the idea that you can be productive um, and uh, at its very base in some ways. And any outward signature of illness can be stigmatized. So I think uh, medicine is a, is a very personal and decision and should be supported no matter what it is. But it's, I think it's, it adds a layer of the stigma that makes it even harder to, you know, I'm not going to say support the individuals who are, you know, experiencing mental health, you know, crises or mental health issues, but it, it certainly is a factor that can affect their own decisions. Yeah. Well, Mark, I think you said um, finding the right medication, right, can be can be tricky. Um, that's that's actually what I've been so afraid of. Um, I I am not like, oh, I, I don't want people to know I'm, I'm taking medication or whatever. I, I, I know if it helps, it helps. What I've been afraid of um, is how my body is going to respond to medication. Because to get real personal, um, historically, my body does not respond well to, um, to medications, to um, hormones. I've gone through, I felt like every birth control under the sun uh, to try to figure out you know, what works for me. I've always developed some kind of horrific side effect or symptom as a result of, of these medications. And so, um, I dragged my feet for a real long time to not talk to a professional about medication. It was just counseling. Maybe I'll be fine. And then I've gotten to the point where it's like, you know, I think I need some more help besides counseling. And I'm still at the point where, um, you know, I was I was officially diagnosed recently with mild depressive disorder and uh, moderate anxiety disorder, and prescribed uh, an anti uh, or an anxiety medication. And 
Dave can can speak to this and and what I went through uh, getting the diagnosis and picking up the medication. I haven't touched it um, because I'm I'm afraid of how I'm going to feel. Uh, and it's ironic that it's uh, yeah an anxiety medication that I'm anxious to take. But uh, but yeah, and and I've I've spoken to other people who are on medication who are frustrated with the process of finding what works for them. Um, because I think, I think Brian mentioned her earlier where, you know, you have some doctors who can prescribe, uh, but they just prescribe by the book. You know, you meet these exact tick marks, uh, in my book. And so that means this medication should work for you. And every person is different and how they're going to respond to things. And so if some doctors aren't taking the time to listen to you and get to know you and understand your own personal nuances, um, then it can become a very frustrating process where you're going through different medication that doesn't work. And, you know, you hear a lot of times, uh, as with birth control as well, they say it takes up to three months for your body to start to get used to what you're taking and decide whether or not it wants to work or not. And that's a long time, right? If you're dealing with symptoms that are are crippling you, right? Um, you don't want to have to keep dealing with them while you're trying to figure out what medication is going to work best for you. And so that can become a very um, frustrating part of the process. And it's also something that people need to keep in mind um, that for, for some, it, it will be a longer process to figure out what works for you. Um, but yeah, I guess for me, that, that's been my, my biggest point of anxiety is, is finding something that will work and not being afraid to try. I think that's a reasonable fear. Um, and especially when it's something, it's not like an antibiotic, or you're going to take a small dose of it and then your problem's gone, right? This is a, an ongoing, you're going to be needing to take this medication, I don't want to say long term, but for an extended period, which I think magnifies that anxiety you are attempting to change your brain chemistry in most of these ways and you know i think a lot of the fear with that comes around from if i change my brain chemistry am i still me you just added added another layer to this onion man (laughs) uh well i mean one episode on mental health and depression come on guys yeah No small feet, yeah. you know, and, but, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, to jump off the, the medication thing, one of the things that like you know, fascinates me is, you know, prescribers of medication aren't always mental health professionals. You can get a prescription for Prozac or Zoloft or uh, whatever it may be from your GP, you know, and dialing in the dosage there is like, you don't go see your general practitioner, you know, two weeks later to, or three months later to check in on, you know, how things are going. How is that? Have you had side effects? You know, um, uh, uh, it's, and it's this very, I'm going to say, medical model to mental illness that might not always fit there. And including in research, because, you know, Dave, one of the things that I was most excited to read about, because it came out and hit the, you know, Reddit front page pretty quickly. Um, was, you know, the most recent uh, studies on psilocybin uh, or magic mushrooms, um, you know, and their effectiveness in treating depression and anxiety 
And because certain researchers are actually out there, you know, trying to figure out how to deactivate the hallucinogenic effect of the psilocybin, but maintain the good parts that um, show the, that alter the brain chemistry to maintain, you know, uh, elevated mood and reduction in anxiety. Um, it's, it's incredibly interesting research, but it's also incredibly hard to do because we have one state that has decided that taking, you know, mushrooms or psychedelics is in fact not illegal, uh, or at least it's decriminalized, but it's still not legal and it's not part of therapy anywhere. And so it's this, this stigma that medication is this very specific thing. It's going to do this specific thing. And I don't want it to get into a war on drugs discussion here, but you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly promising area of psychotherapy that we know so very little about, and it's going to move at a glacial pace because people aren't allowed to study it. It's like the prohibition on studying gun violence or marijuana from the federal government. Yeah. That's interesting. In, in what state is it decriminalized? Oregon. That's what I thought. It was a recent thing. It was this year. Yeah. Well, Mark, can I ask you, would would it help you at all if I were to come over in a MAGA hat and chant, build that wall? No. <laughs> it wouldn't. You're sure? Yeah. <laughs> um, I had that one in the chamber for like the last 10 minutes. God. It's like, well, I don't want to interrupt this. But. He's going to promise that Leanna is going to pay for it the entire time, too. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy with where this conversation went. Because I, I think this was a much better conversation than just the like we didn't have to talk about how in ancient Rome they were cracking skulls open, <laughs> which somehow every conversation we have is ancient Rome and usually cracking skulls open. I was gonna go with ancient Greece personally. Uh, it, 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 there was both. But. <laughs> we didn't get into my three pages of lobotomy research. <laughs> well, we can always follow up. Pass, hard pass. But this was you. This was unique, and it was a little different for us. And I think that, um, like Leanna said, I think the personal experience story aspect is really what is most comforting, and um, I think what people are missing a lot right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. it's it's possible to have an hour long empirical discussion around mental health and depression. It is very rarely anything different than you will get in your intro to abnormal or intro to psychology course. Right. Um, you know, and that's, that's not why people tune in, you know, we want to well, hear about a Mark's, bit. Uh, Mark's construction projects. I mean, an hour long empirical discussion of something is typically our, our, uh, our the bread model. and butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think with something like this, it's just, it's so, it's so broad. It's so nuanced. I just I described it to Leanna like doing this research was not like hey we're going to talk about the 1920 World Series like well I know exactly the bubble in which that research will exist talking about yeah. depression and mental health is like I, where do you start where do you end where do you go once you get to either side you know so I think just having this conversation to to me was a, a much better way to go, even though that happened sort of organically. So. Well, and I'm I'm really glad that it did. I, I told Dave the reason why I picked this topic, part of the reason why is because, you know, he and I talk about it 
sometimes, <laughs> but you know, he's clearly married to somebody who has, you know, her own struggles here. And, um, I, I know that I, I feel that sometimes, uh, you know, you, you have, have struggled to understand exactly what it is that I'm going through. I try to talk to you about it, but it's hard to explain. And, um, and, and we have, we have some, some family and friends who I think, uh, could benefit from hearing more people talk about depression. Um, and, and, and like I said, the definition of it, uh, helps, but, you know, conversations like what we're having helps. And, um, you know, for people who are listening, who maybe don't have somebody to talk to about it, obviously encourage, uh, we encourage seeking a professional. Um, if you don't know where to start, you know, Mark talked about, uh, that website, Mark, what was the website again? Psychologytoday.com. And there are pictures of, of each person on it as well. For whatever reason, I found that that was helpful. I looked for people that had a friendly looking face. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, based on where I am right now, uh, some, some practices will have you get a referral from your primary care physician. So that's a good starting point. If you aren't sure who to talk to or where to start is to talk to your doctor, um, about what you're thinking, feeling, experiencing. And I also highly recommend being honest it's really easy to to feel weird about some of the questions that you get asked when you go uh, to a psychiatrist. Um, it it will probably, in some cases, make you feel uncomfortable, uh, feeling like you need to downplay again what we were talking about before. Downplay what you're going through. Don't be honest. If they if they ask you if you've ever had su- suicidal thoughts before and you have, say yes. Don't say no. Or it was just one time, it's no big deal, or whatever. You talk about it. Right, you've done yourself no good by lying there. Right. Right. It's like, so, it's like uh, most doctors in that way. You know, mm-hmm. if you go in and you downplay the severity of your symptoms, your doctor might think that you just have a sinus infection when they need to, you know, probe you for a tumor. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other thing that I wanted to do, and I know we've, we've been talking for a while and Dave's going to have his work cut out for him on (laughs) chipping this down. I don't know if anybody will feel like, uh, I feel like it would be helpful again for the folks who are listening, who maybe are not as comfortable with this topic and haven't openly talked about it with people or know someone in their life who is experiencing it and don't know how to approach them. I, I definitely wanted to mention some of the, the suggestions um, on these medical websites for helping a loved one um, seek help or get started. You know, having that conversation is difficult enough, um, but but at least uh, expressing what you've noticed about your your loved one um, changes and 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 offering you know, hey, let's look at. Um, finding a professional or let's, let's look at talking to your doctor. Um, you know, again, expressing your willingness to help in general, like, Hey, I'll help you set up an appointment. Or if you want, you know, if, when, when things are more prevalent in person, if you want, um, somebody to come with you, you know, I'll come with you to your appointments if that'll make you feel better. Um, 
encouraging people to stick with their treatment. If they get started with treatment and then end up feeling frustrated, one, if it's a medication, right, as I was talking about, um, sticking with it, I think is important to to encourage your loved one. Um, be willing to listen, you know, let, let them talk. Let them know you want to understand how they feel. Um, if they just want to talk, just listen carefully and avoid giving advice or opinions um, or making judgments um, or downplaying, right? Or saying anything that would downplay um, their depression. Well, you know, we're all, we all kind of feel that way. Uh, I think I was telling Brian about this and you made an example too, Brian, but um, that's, that's what's happened at a couple of my therapists that I didn't, didn't really exactly vibe with where they just be like, well, it just sounds like you're going through an existential crisis and we all kind of feel that way. And I'm just kind of like, okay, that doesn't make me feel better that I'm having these feelings right now. I, I had a therapist say to me, and this is not paraphrasing, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> so... Cool. New therapist, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you give me a referral? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know this great guy. His name's Dr. Lecter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, just... Just being able to listen, I think that for me is is somebody who's a, a good professional too, and not professional, just a friend, uh, somebody who just listens, um, truly listens, and and doesn't try to to twist your words or change anything. Um, you know, give positive reinforcement. People with depression may judge themselves harshly and find fault with everything they do. Remind your loved one about this um, that their positive qualities, what they are, and how much the person means to you and others. Um, you know, if there are certain tasks that this person can no longer, um, take care of themselves, offer assistance with this, um, help create a low stress environment, you know, create a regular routine. It might help the person with depression feel more in control, offer to make a schedule for meals, medication, physical activity, sleep, other organization, household chores, um, locate helpful organizations. A number of organizations offer support groups, counseling, and other resources for depression. For example, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Employee Assistance Programs, which is what I was doing for a while, um, and many faith-based opportunity or organizations offer help for mental health concerns. Um, you know, some some folks find comfort in spiritual practice if it's appropriate for them. Um, maybe encourage that. Um, or make plans together. Honestly, ask your ask your loved one, friend, family member, join you on a walk, go see a movie. I know right now that's tough. Uh, work with you on a hobby or other activity that that he or she previously enjoyed, um, or they what they previously enjoyed. Don't try to force a person into doing something, but um, obviously, your your act of care will probably go uh, a long way to that individual. Um, so those are just some things I wanted to make sure I mentioned for, for folks that are listening that might be feeling, you know, like they need to be heard and they need help or, or that you have a loved one that, um, you would like to better support or understand, um, who's going through this. Those are a lot of good points. Something that, that happens a lot in, in my relationship is my wife will tell me, um, I'm having a really bad day today. And the way that I sometimes deal with things is to kind of go into problem solving mode and list off a bunch of things or, or ask like, well, what do you need me to do to help you? And there really isn't anything that I can do 
to help. Yeah, I do the same thing, I think. And what she really wants is comfort and understanding. But there are other things like planning something to do or picking up food or whatever and taking something else off of her plate that that is helpful in certain circumstances. I don't always do a good job of doing that, but um, I'm trying to see it from someone else's point of view and be more consistent and you know, it's it's sometimes hard to do when you feel like you are also dealing with your own set of issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's definitely a balance, right? It's a balance from uh, from your perspective and hers, where you know she'll she'll communicate what she can with you, and then you know you you'll do what you can to 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 counterbalance or or help with what what you can do. I mean, that's all. That's all you can do in a scenario. And, and you know, unfortunately, some, some folks are in a position, um, again, for those of you who are experiencing a loved one, perhaps, who's going through it, um, some, some folks may um, not even fully understand what they're going through um, and not be able to recognize the need for help. Um, and that's a very tricky scenario. Um, that I will never claim to be able to explain or help you through, but um, just know that that's kind of, I guess, where I was talking with Mark with balance. Um, you can only help someone so far um, before they have to ask for help or, or realize that, that help would be needed for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I think it all starts with being honest and having a degree of understanding. Like I, I feel pretty free being honest with you and talking about my experience. And it feels nice to talk about it a little bit. And I hope that listeners maybe would feel the same way to talk to their family about how they feel. Well, and, and for those who, again, if it's a loved one and you are having trouble understanding you know, listen to podcasts like this or um, do some research, do some research of your own, um, learn about depression. You know, the better the better you understand what causes depression and how it affects people and how it can be treated, the better you're going to be able to talk to somebody who you feel like might benefit from a conversation. Also take care of yourself from experience. Um, taking care of yourself is really important because supporting someone with depression is not easy. Um, asking other relatives or friends to help um, and taking steps to prevent becoming frustrated or burned out is really important. Um, so continue to find time for your own hobbies and physical activities, friends and all that. Um, so taking care of yourself, you, you can't really help someone else if you yourself are not feeling very healthy. Um, and be patient. That's a a really big thing. Um, depression symptoms do improve with treatment, but it can take time. Finding the best treatment may require trying more than one type of medication, as I was saying before. But for some people, um, symptoms can quickly improve after starting treatment. For others, it'll take longer. So from both the, um, the, the loved one's perspective and the person who is going through depression, um, be patient. That's, that's kind of a big talking point. Um, I also want to make sure I know that there are different TV shows that after they've done an episode specifically about 
depression. They're like for, you know, the suicide hotline. And I know that that seems um, silly, but I am going to actually read the number, um, the suicide hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, or 8255, 1-800-273-8255. And I recommend if you really are feeling in crisis, um, you know, start with that hotline. Um, if you or a loved one is in immediate danger um, of truly hurting themselves or others, I'd say as a last resort, call 911. Um, this is not necessarily a knock. It's more of a truth. Um, police are not equipped necessarily to handle mental health crises and we won't go into that that's a whole podcast topic on its we, own we actually talked about it in our policing episode a bit about social workers and yeah. um, other countries and i think you're totally right so so i'll just say that maybe uh as an absolute last resort that would be the number to call but uh suicide hotline first and foremost um yeah that's that's just a big point that i wanted to make um but hopefully hopefully folks are are out there listening and understand that uh, there's people that, that want to hear from you um, and are happy to listen and and try to help as much as, as they can. Uh, on that note, we'll, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you for listening to an hour of our time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 100 episodes and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at anhourofourtimepodcast at gmail.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.